Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, give me a brief moment. Yeah, see how that water does down there. Uh, it's my joy to be with you, as Gabe said. Uh, my name is Dan Spina. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Community. And uh, let me tell you why it's my joy. Because somebody brought some amazing pumpkin bread this morning. I don't know who it was. But pumpkin bread and fresh strawberries are like my love language. So thank you. I am so glad to be here. Um, and I get to preach. So it's kind of like cream cheese on pumpkin bread. <clears throat> Just thought of that. Uh, since the start of January, as Gabe said, we've been engaging in Open Here, and Open Here is our way of encouraging everyone to be in their Bibles reading on a daily basis. Uh, and on Sunday mornings, we've been working through this, this, the bigger biblical story uh, that we find in the Bible, not working through every chapter, uh, but working through the, the bigger story. And we started in Genesis, um, and then this morning now, and as last week, as you heard too, we were in Exodus. And this morning, we were going to intersect with these Israelites who are now wandering in the desert um, in chapter 16, as, you, as was just read for us. There are a few weeks in their journey. It was just a few weeks ago that they walked through on dry ground, on dry ground that the Passover happened um, as well, and they are not happy. God has brought them out to the wilderness, out to the desert. And while there are several spiritual undertones uh, that, that go with this idea, this idea of being in the desert, about God bringing them out there, I can directly relate to these Israelites. You see, several years ago, God brought me to the wilderness. He brought me to the desert. No, really, he brought me to Phoenix, Arizona. It's <laughs> the desert. And let me tell you, it is hot in the desert. The, the sun just hunts you down and finds you and just hits you with its rays. You, you cannot hide from the sun. I can get why the Israelites complain about not having food and not having water, because in the desert, really, there isn't much of either. But more than being blasted by the sun, uh, it was in the desert that God found me. That led me to the sun, Jesus. You see, it was in Arizona that my life took a dramatic turn. Up to this point in my life, I was walking in the opposite direction of God, wandering away from God, not with God by any means. But it was in the desert that I found God, or that he found me, that we found each other. And like the Israelites, the time in the desert in my life uh, served a greater purpose in my journey. And I'd like to tell you that my life has been on this perfect trajectory since then, uh, walking with God, but unfortunately that is not true. Since then, my life has had a number of twists and turns, and with each one, I found myself complaining along the way. And at each step of the journey, I failed to open my eyes and recognize God at work. Instead, I often was and presently am grumbling or, or complaining, and I was being short-sighted and missed his presence in my life. This is where the text speaks to me directly. I'll try not to do that too many times. And maybe it speaks to you as well in your story with God. The text challenges us to open our eyes. Short-sightedness limits seeing or recognizing God's presence. And this is where we'll begin to explore Exodus this morning, Exodus 16. But before we do, let me pray for us as we continue in our worship. Lord, I pray that you would indeed open our eyes. Help us to recognize your presence in our lives. And as we gather here this morning... I pray, Lord, that your words would speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to receive your truths. May you alone be glorified here this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. 
Again, this text implores us to open our eyes and recognize God's presence and provision. And Exodus 16 prominently displays three themes that we're going to look at this morning. These three key ideas that are intertwined throughout Exodus, but find their intersection here in this chapter. And these three themes are grumbling, manna, and God's glory. So first we come to the problem with man, grumbling. And we see this word in this idea in verses 2 through 3 in the, the text that was just read. However, this is not the first time that the Israelites are seeing grumbling. And as we examine our own lives, I think we find that we too grumble. The problem with man, when I say man, I mean mankind, men and women. The problem with man is that we grumble. We complain. We see God's glory, his greatness, and yet we grumble. We witness the presence and power of the Creator, yet we complain. We see a clear display of God's work in our lives, and yet we whine. I think you will find that we are just like the Israelites. So what does grumbling look like in our lives? Well, let's use the Israelites in this Exodus chapter as a way to explore this. Lest you think that these people are crying out psalms of lament with their grumbling— let me tell you that this word, this grumbling word, does not have a sanctifying understanding to it. Literally, it means to murmur, which is a funny word. <laughs> that means to mutter, to babble, or to complain. In this text, the word that is used is similar to a dog howling. <laughs> and I actually had a professor in Bible school, actually uh, Gabe was in this exact same class with me, uh, that upon teaching this chapter, he would howl like a dog. And so imagine this, instead of hearing your neighbor's dog howling at the moon while you were sleeping, right, I just lost you all. Okay, so imagine instead of a fire truck howling down the street in the city in the middle of the night while you're trying to sleep, instead of that, there's this grown man standing in front of a classroom of 100 students howling out in his fine southern accent. <laughs> it's probably one of the funniest experiences in a class that any seminary student goes through. But why would this man make such a fool of himself in front of everyone? Because he wants us to realize what is going on in this text. You see, a dog howls when it's complaining about something, when it's usually it's food or it's, lo or it's loneliness. And let's be frank, most of the time the howling is just pointless. And here the text says the Israelites are howling like a dog or grumbling. But this isn't the first time that we see these Israelites grumbling or murmuring or complaining. In chapter 5, the Israelites start complaining to Moses about not having straw. And were afraid that the Egyptians were going to kill them. Now this happens right after chapter 3. And in chapter 3, God says, I'm going to take you away from here. I'm promising you a great land. You are going to be my people. The land's going to be flowing with milk and honey. And let's be honest, who doesn't love milk and honey, Right? He promises them that, yet they still grumble. In chapter 14, they start grumbling as soon as they saw the Egyptians following them. And remember, this is right after the ten plagues or the ten miracles that God had just done, sparing the Israelites while the entire Egyptian nation suffered tremendously. And then again, in chapter 15, they approach bitter water, and they grumble because they are thirsty. They are three days in their journey, three days from the time of the Passover, from walking on dry ground. But these miracles, these ten plagues, these ten miracles that they just witnessed, 
and they are complaining. Okay, now I get that most of us cannot remember what we did on Thursday or Friday. We probably don't even remember what we did yesterday, right? Well, let me ask you this. If you walked across the Missouri River with 600,000 of your friends on Thursday night, walking on dry ground with walls of water on your right and on your left, with a cloud behind you and a fire in front of you leading the way, would you not remember that? Right? (laughs) And if we did remember, how might that shape the way we are thinking and behaving right now? Or maybe a better question is, would it shape the way we're thinking and behaving right now? I just started listening to NPR about two weeks ago, and just about every day since then, I have told my wife how much I am enjoying listening to various programs and to the station at large. She actually told me the other day that I've mentioned this to her every single day for the past three days straight and was wondering if I was mentally stable. (laughs) See, I don't remember telling her because I was so excited to tell her again. And this is NPR. It's not a miraculous river crossing, (laughs) right? But this is where we find the Israelites. This is the state that we find them in. Amazing miracle after miracle, and yet they grumble. And then in our text today, in chapter 16, in verse 2, we see the Israelites grumbling again. They are hungry. It's now been several weeks since the Passover, since they've crossed through this, this Red River, Red Sea, and they're out in the desert, they're in the wilderness, their food has run out, and now not, not only are they grumbling to God, but their stomachs are grumbling to them. They are hungry. Grumble, grumble, grumble. This is what characterizes the Israelites at this point in the story. Their grumbling is an externalization of what is going on in their hearts, not just their stomachs. We need to remember the context of the journey. We need to remember what has happened to them up to this point, how they got to this place that we find them in. And it's important to look at the whole journey, not just the present situation. Their grumbling defines the state of their heart. Not only do they grumble, but when God tells them not to store the manna, they don't listen. And when he tells them to collect the manna on this, not to collect the manna on the seventh day, again, they don't listen. Their grumbling is evidence of their disobedient hearts and their lack of memory. One author, in commenting on this text and this portion of Scripture, he says, Israel's stubbornness is so similar to Pharaoh's that it warrants a similar rebuke. In their grumbling, the Israelites are in danger of becoming more like the Egyptians than the holy people God has called them to be. In other words, they're looking more and more like the Egyptians than these called-out people set apart that are supposed to be living contrary to the world around them. Now, it's easy for us... (laughs) to look at this story and laugh, and I kind of baited you guys a little bit, that we could laugh at these wandering Israelites. We see that they are grumbling, and we think, they just don't get it. (laughs) What else do these people want? But when we start to press into the text, we start to realize we are just like these Israelites. We, too, grumble and murmur, complain. 
this text forces us to ask ourselves, why do we grumble? Maybe, like the Israelites, we are short-sighted in how we view our own lives. In a recent conversation with referring to another person, a friend of mine quipped, she's not seeing the miracles she is desiring. I just, I love that phrase. It was just this past week, and you should take note that if you ever have a conversation with Gabe when he's preparing for a sermon, it could be used in a sermon, so let that be warning. But I, and I warned him, I'm like, I loved what you just said. I'm taking, did you hear that? She's not seeing the miracles she's desiring. We grumble when we don't see the miracles that we want right now. We don't see the whole journey. We only see our present situation. And when things are not going well, we grumble. We want a miracle, God. Where are you? I see this in my own life. My journey with God that took a dramatic shift in that desert several years ago. And along the way, God has done some amazing things. A dramatic move from Phoenix to New Jersey a career transition that brought me to seminary school, a chance encounter that brought me here to Kansas. And now as we look to the future, my wife and I are just wondering what is God going to do next as our fellowship time starts to wind down. Like the Israelites, I am on a journey. And between that desert and where I am today, God has been at work and doing some remarkable things. But the problem is, is that as I continue to move forward, I forget to look back. The minute I hit some stress, I complain. And let me tell you, if Paul is the chief of sinners, I am the chief of complainers, because I can complain. I forget that all along the way, God has done some amazing miracles, and instead, I don't see the miracle that I presently desire. I don't remember, and instead, I forget. And not only... Do I forget what God has done? But my memory of what yesterday was like looks better than it actually was. Maybe some of you can relate to this. We complain and we exclaim, How long, God? When will you? Remember when? (laughs) We grumble just like the Israelites. Sarah Grove's song, which we sang this morning, uh, so awesome, Painting Pictures of Egypt, just captures this perfectly. She really captures this text so well. And in it, she sings, I won't sing, but she sings, The past is so tangible, I know it by heart. Familiar things are never easy to discard. I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I am caught between the promise and the things I know. I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacks. The future feels so hard, and I want to go back. When we are faced with hard times, when we are in a desert or wilderness period, we long for a way out. We forget what God has done previously. We remember the past better than it really was. and We are not ready to wait for God to provide, and we grumble. In Psalm 27, verse 14, we read, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for God's provision takes strength and courage. But true to his word, God does provide. This is the second theme that we see in this text. God's provision, or manna. Manna is probably not a common word for most of us. Manna is God's provision. We see this idea in verse 4, 
However, it's prominent throughout the rest of this chapter, (laughs) the rest of Exodus, and frankly, it is the theme of the Bible, God's consistent and faithful provision for his people. And in verse 4, we have this interplay between God testing the Israelites and God promising provision for the Israelites. The Israelites' time in the wilderness was previously spoken of in chapter 3. In that chapter, God told Moses that to bring the people on a three-day journey out to the wilderness to offer sacrifices to him. He wants to bring them into the wilderness. He wants the Israelites to truly worship him. And every step of the journey between the encounter in chapter 3 and the journey that they are on now, God gives them provision along the way. He gives them provision and he wonders, will they trust that he will provide or will they turn astray? Will they, in fact, continue to worship him, or will they worship themselves, or in this case, their stomachs? And in verse 4, God is explicit. He says he will give them daily provision, but it will come with some parameters. He wants to test their hearts, the text says. Though there is this idea of testing, which is understood as a time of refining, of drawing the Israelites into a right worship of God, God still provides for them along the way. The goal is true worship of God. The provision is meant to point the Israelites to the goal. But instead of worshiping the provider, they start to worship the provision. In chapter 15, just before this text, in 25 through 26, God makes a promise to the Israelites The text says, There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God promises to provide for them. He promises them that they will indeed inherit this land. He has provided them safety during the Passover. He's provided clear ground in the midst of this giant sea. He's provided sweet water that was once was bitter. And here again, he provides food to satisfy their hunger. He continually provides. He patiently and faithfully provides. But the problem is the Israelites don't recognize the provision. They're not seeing the miracle that they desire. In verse 15, upon coming upon this provision from God, the Israelites actually exclaim, what is it? This is the literal translation of manna. God provides for them once again, but they do not see it, nor do they recognize. Their hearts are not set on worshiping God. We see this immediately in the response to this daily provision. This provision is given with some rules. They are not to store it overnight because God promises he'll provide again the next day, every day. And on the sixth day, they are to collect enough for the seventh day and not to go out and collect food on the seventh day. What do the Israelites do? (laughs) They start storing food when they're not supposed to and they're gathering food when they're not supposed to. The provision is there. The promise to continue to provide and to take care of them is there. Yet they just don't recognize the provision. They don't remember the continual promise of God to provide for them. More than that, that God is indeed present with them, caring for them. 
And we are not that different from these Israelites. Like the Israelites, our, ha- our hearts rest in the presence or the absence of provision, right? We love the gift instead of the giver. We get angry at what we lack, and we say things like, How long, God? What about us? What about me? We grumble because we lack provision, or we think we lack provision. Instead of waiting, we start complaining. But when we wait, when we slow down, we can see God's provision for what it is. We can recognize his provision. You see, the provision points us to God. It's both in the giving and the withholding of the manna that we are shaped and tested. When we hear this word tested, we cringe. Who wants to be tested, right? But this testing is not some sort of metric to decide who's in and who's out. Rather, this testing is a refining that helps us grow. It strengthens us. God wants to see where the Israelites' hearts are, and likewise, he wants to see where our hearts are. (coughs) Testing shapes our fear of God. God is indeed to be feared, but not simply dreadfully feared, but honored and reverently feared. Testing helps us develop a proper understanding of God's provision. When we have proper understanding of God's provision, we learn that God will not send us out into the wilderness and, and abandon us. Instead, God provides for us what we need on a daily basis. And he allows our hearts to be shaped, to be conformed, to be tested, so that we can grow in relationship with him. The difficulty is, when we are tested, we don't see the big picture, which makes worshiping God very difficult. We can see this in, like, in a father-child relationship. This is perfectly modeled. When a father pulls his child away from an exposed outlet, the child experiences a traumatic event. For the child, it is an inexplicable, incomprehensible tragedy that the father will never be forgiven for. For everyone else in the room, it's good parenting. The father is providing for the child. God allows difficulty to force us to let go of our plans, our ingenuity, and to trust him daily and to truly worship him. Not only that, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the test, God is still present, and God is still providing. Do we recognize the provision from God in our lives, the faithful provision that draws us away from grumbling and draws us toward the presence of God? This, then, is the third theme in the text the presence of God or or God's glory. We see this directly in verses 6 and 7, but really God's presence is seen throughout this text. Now, some of you might be familiar with this story. You might be familiar with this grumbling theme. You may have heard of this manna theme, but maybe not the glory theme. Listen to some some of the words in these verses, just in the first 12 verses that were read for us. In verse 6, it says, So you know it was the Lord... In verse 7, you shall see the glory of the Lord. In verse 7 again, he has heard you. In verse 8, when the Lord gives you. In verse 9, come near before the Lord. In verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared. In verse 12, I have heard. And again in verse 12, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
God's presence is repeatedly referred to. He's present with them, he hears them, he sees them, he reveals himself to them, and he is leading them. The goal of the provision is not that they might have food, but that they would recognize and worship God. Take a look again at verse 4. This is such a key verse in this text. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God provides to show his glory. God provides for them so that he might test them, that they might start to truly worship God. And he sets boundaries on the provision, just as any father sets boundaries for his child. But broken boundaries reveal a broken heart to God, such that in verse 28, God later exclaims, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? We complain to God by questioning him. God answers back with an exclamation. God provides every day, not enough for the week, but enough for the day. But his provision is not the goal. He wants to know if we will continue in our worship of him. In Exodus, we learn that God brought the Israelites out to the desert, out to the wilderness to to offer sacrifices to the Lord and to test them to refine them, to point them to the right worship of God. Difficult times, what we may call wilderness periods in our lives, are times of refinement. They are times that God uses to shape us. But in these wilderness periods, God does not leave us or abandon us. He didn't leave the Israelites or abandon them, and he won't do the same to us. God's faithful provision points to his faithful presence. What is amazing in this story is that God displays patience over and over again, even when the Israelites grumble. They're grumbling at him, and he's still providing for them. What's amazing in our story is that God displays the same patience for us, even when we complain. God's provision and his presence are interlinked. His provision reflects his presence and displays his glory. Take a look at verse 10 and 14. In verse 10, it says that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. So they're looking at the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord is there. Skipping down to verse 14, it says, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. The manna was there, right where God's presence was. God's provision reveals God's glory. And all God wants is his people to recognize his faithful presence. He wants a people that recognize his glory. And this is where our heart should land. You see, grumbling is just a tip of the iceberg. Underneath the waterline is a heart that is misaligned and a mind that is forgetful. We send out prayers asking for God's presence, yet God has already promised his permanent presence in the form of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. It is a fulfilled promise. God satisfies our longings. He hears our prayers. He communes with us. 
And God faithfully provides for us, even though we may not recognize the provision. Even though we might forget what he has done for us. And he does so that we recognize him. He continually works in our lives, drawing us into a deeper relationship with him, which is his goal. But hear me out on this. I'm not saying that God promises an easy life. I'm not here saying that you will not indeed have difficult times. Like the Israelites, God wants to refine your heart. He wants to test you, if you will. The author of Hebrews picks this up. In chapter 12, verse 7, he says, it is, for the disi- it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And in Romans 5, Paul talks about a persevering faith in the midst of suffering. Both authors refer to discipline and testing done with the goal of growing in our walk with God. Earlier I stated that short-sightedness limits recognizing God's presence. Like the Israelites, God calls us out to the desert, to the wilderness, to test our vision. He wants us to open our eyes. He refines us. And unfortunately, we find that we are often short-sighted, we don't recognize his presence, and that we grumble about provision. How might we begin to correct some of our short-sightedness? Let me summarize three suggestions that I have already mentioned to you here this morning. First, remembering is a cure for short-sightedness. We we often find ourselves in difficult situations. We don't see the miracle that we are presently desiring. In times like these, we can lose hope and we can start to grumble. But it is times like these that we should look back on what God has done in our lives. Be proactive about this. As you experience God, journal about it. Put a rock in a jar. Do whatever you want to such that you have a way to reflect upon God's faithful presence and provision in your life. Because believe me, you are going to face some hard times. You're going to go through a refinement period. And you might be tempted to forget how God has indeed provided for you. Second, waiting is a cure for short-sightedness. Waiting takes courage and strength. In our nanosecond world, we get impatient quickly, and again, we can lose hope. We seek miracles now, God. Where are you? (laughs) But be strong and even courageous. Wait on the Lord. As God is patient and faithful to you, be patient and faithful in him. And finally, bread is a cure for short-sightedness. Moses interprets this wilderness period, this time of them, in the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verses 1 through 3, he says, The whole commandment that I command you today you, sh- you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go on and, pa- and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It was not the manna that kept the Israelites alive, but it was God. And as we turn the pages to the New Testament, we see the new bread, the bread of life, Jesus. As we place our faith in him, our short-sightedness is cured. And ultimately we learn that God satisfies our deepest desires with a permanent solution. He gives us the gift of eternal life through faith in his son, Jesus. And as we remember what God has done, as we wait upon what he will do, and as we place our faith in Jesus, our short-sightedness is cured, and we can recognize God's presence with us and his provisions for us. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord, I feel as though I barely scratched the surface of what you're trying to teach us in this text. Yet, I do know in our lives we do complain to you because we don't recognize your provision in the midst, in the midst of difficult times. And we fail to properly worship you. Forgive our hearts, Lord. Give us the strength and courage to remember and to wait on you. And may you strengthen our faith as we seek your face. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord, and for your daily provisions. Thank you for your fellowship, God. Amen.